You're listening to M-Dash. I'm Kim Aquaviva. Today's episode, Kink, Not Forks, featuring Laura Antoniou and Karen Taylor. Today's episode may not be appropriate for all listeners, particularly for children. I'm Laura Antoniou. And I'm Karen Taylor. And uh, we've been together now for... 18? Something like that. Yeah. A long time. A while. Well, this is Laura, and I describe myself as a pervert. Not quite as scary as sadomasochist, which is actually a better description. I am, I, I guess you'd call me a, a, a polysexual person. I am right. open to, uh, to people of any gender. Um, but it seems in my life that I prefer Karen most of all. And it, it does appear that I have longer relationships with people who identify as women, but you know, I'm only 53, so. The terms that I use to describe my identity are um, female, um, Jewish, which sometimes is pulled into play around talking with particularly mental health professionals, um, and, uh, and kinky. Uh, those would be the ways that I would describe myself. So, Laura, you use the word pervert. And Karen, you use the word kinky. Uh, How have those identities impacted your interactions with healthcare professionals? And do you share those identities when you interact with healthcare professionals? Uh, I do. I don't necessarily tell them I'm a pervert. For them, I will use the the term sadomasochist, or I might actually, depending on who it is and how much information they need to... Uh, have about me, I may use a, I might say, well, you know, that uh, BDSM that's in the, the news, that's, that's me. I do that. And how have people reacted? Um, almost universally with delight. Some of that may be because we, you know, we also live in New York City. And, um, and so we have, we have a, we have a lot of access to a lot of different healthcare providers. And so if there were people that had responded more negatively, we have options. Um, and we could just go someplace else. But uh, when I went to see a chiropractor last year, um, while he was taking my health history, and uh, I told him that I write, which is why I have uh, muscle spasms in my neck and my right arm. And uh, he said, why do you write? And I said, oh, pornography. And uh, and I also wrote an award-winning winning mystery. <laughs> And uh, he was so delighted to find out that I was a pornographer that he then mentioned every single movie he's ever seen that uh, had anything kinky in it. He was absolutely thrilled that I would talk to him about these things. Although after a while I did have to tell him not while he's working on me. (laughs) Because if I have to focus on answering questions then I'm not relaxing. Well, I, um, I've, I've been, I'd say, very, um, very fortunate in a lot of cases. I have a couple of, um, of scars that are clearly decorative, and, um, and uh, particularly if I'm having um, a, an appointment with an OBGYN and I'm, I'm uh, you know, undressed from the, the bottom half of my body, um, they, they would be something that, that are, would be pretty noticeable. And um, one of the things that I'd say I'm very um, uh, that that uh, the doctors that I have that that have identified them and have asked me 
um, they ask the right follow-up questions. Um, I've, I've had an OBGYN who, who asked me what they were and I said they were um, decorative scars. And her follow-up question was, um, were they something you consented to? Yeah, that was a good follow-up question. I really appreciated. You know, she was not like she was. She made it very clear in in the encounter that she wasn't going to. You know that that she was more concerned about my um, my background in abuse and had had in her mind a difference between what abuse and what consensual um, SM might look like. And so I, I appreciated that as a distinction. Um, when I have talked to mental health providers. Um, sometimes I have to be more, um, and I'm more willing um, in those contexts for you know psychotherapy, to be a little bit more uh, explicit about the conversations because I um, I know that um, you know my my sexual history and my sexual identity and my gender identity are all pieces that are that that are are part of looking at my my general my general mental health. Um, I'm also, uh, feel, um, confident enough in myself that when, um, I've had, um, a psychotherapist that has, um, you know, would periodically say, you know, and do you think that this issue might be, you know, you know, your, your interest in SM might be related to, you know, your childhood sexual history, for example, um, you know, I'm willing to actually, you know, to think about it and not feel too defensive or, or worry. Um, and um, in, uh, in my most recent experience with mental health professionals, the, um, the therapist that I'm seeing now is very willing to accept what I say, um, probably because my body language is pretty relaxed as well. That, you know, it's like, no, I, I found that I really like do, doing this sort of thing. And, um, and I have a very healthy um, relationship. I, I'm actually interested in talking about these particular issues that I, that I want to address, and um, and have you know, and have not been sort of dragged back to the, are you sure? Do you think? Um, but for me, <clears throat> excuse me. Part of the part of the thing with particularly mental health professionals is that again, in New York City, we're pretty rich with mental health professionals that have some background in working with the LGBT community, um, working with people that have various issues around trauma, um, uh, uh, people who have worked with varying issues around grief, particularly in, um, in the gay community. And, um, and so I, you know, if I was not comfortable, um, I would also, I also feel like I would have had the freedom even, you know, within my insurance to find somebody else who may be more willing um, to, um, believe me when I would say things like, you know, I don't think that my sexual identity is actually something that I need to, that I'm struggling with. <laughs> I remember I told uh, our GP, Larry, yeah, uh, way before you moved here, uh -huh. um, that I was a sadomasochist. And he said, okay, so explain that to me. And I did. Um, that, that I engaged in uh, occasionally painful or stressful activities for pleasure. Um, and he said, and do you, are you sad or angry about this? Do, uh, are you able to conduct your life comfortably 
with this? And I said, oh yeah, absolutely. I'm just informing you because it's part of my history. And he said, okay, if you ever have any trouble, you know, know that you can call me. As a coincidence, it was the exact same answer he gave me because when I first met him, oh. I was about uh, 240 pounds. And uh, he asked me as he was taking my first physical, he said, so, you know, you're, you're, you're very overweight. Um, how do you feel about that? And I said, honestly, it doesn't bother me. I seem to be otherwise healthy and I, I don't care about meeting uh, other people's ideas of, you know, being attractive. And he said exactly the same thing. He said, well, if it ever bothers you, you could call me. And so one day when it did bother me, I called him. And uh, so there you go. He's a very good doctor. Yeah. Yeah, I would say one of the things that was really, really helpful and, and you know, is not definitely not an identity that Lori has anymore because of um, of, of uh, some some uh, things that she did in her life. Um, she had also for a while identified as a comfortable fat person mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and finding and, and that was actually more of a barrier, I think, with with talking with different health professionals right, that were seriously. not our GP. <laughs> than talking about sexual history um because, right, because so many doctors immediately leap to well <clears throat> if you lost weight right yeah. and you know, it's like well you know she did she she didn't have any stress on her joints she didn't have diabetes you know and it was like you know if you went in and said i had a head cold and it was you know if the response at that point was you know well maybe if you lost weight you're like, <laughs> really but yeah our our gp um is is actually um really really wonderful in that um and um, and I and I think we both feel like we could trust him if there was something that was more personal. More personal. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, it's really been having to describe more when it comes to talking to OBGYNs and um, talking to mental health professionals. Um, and <clears throat> and the the OBGYN piece that uh, that had been an issue for me was uh, when I'd had a hysterectomy, and it wasn't about the SM. Um, it was because well, it's kind of sort of well, <laughs> yeah, it, but it, well, it was also about um, you know, getting the hysterectomy and signing the paperwork was was this piece that I found was really an interesting kind of classist piece. <clears throat> this is pre um, uh, the Affordable Care Act, but I had to sign a piece of paper that that said that I understood that um, that by having a hysterectomy that I would not be able to get pregnant. And, and uh, I, you know, and, and it was, and I, I looked at the nurse and I said, you have got to be kidding. I, you know, I, I know how people get pregnant and I'm not going to sign something this ridiculous. Um, and, you know, at the, you know, at the time I hadn't had sex with any men for over two years. And so, um, you know, I'd also said that to her and, and the interesting reaction, because I, I really kind of stood up and I was like, I'm not going to sign this was that um, they then went to my surgeon and the surgeon's answer to me was fascinating. He said, you know, I'm so sorry, you don't need to sign this unless you're on Medicaid. And I just, I just felt so offended <laughs> at the idea that, you know, poverty and ignorance were supposed to go together and the, you know, and the privilege of having health insurance meant that I, you know, was somehow more educated and would understand these things. I found that to be really kind of outrageous. Lori did remind me 
One of the other things, though, with that with that particular surgery for me was that, um, you know, the technology for hysterectomies has has you know changed so wonderfully, and it can be so much less invasive than it was in my mother's day. Um, but I um, I was very clear with the doctor that I wanted to keep my cervix because in my sexual history, I found that um, that having um, you know, really rough sex and having something pressed near my cervix was something that brought me a lot of pleasure. And, and the, the surgeon I was talking to said once, just once, he said, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of, of medical, not, you know, information that says there's actually nerve centers around that area. And I said, nevertheless, nevertheless. I plan to keep it. And that was it. He was like, okay, then, you know, then the surgery we're going to do is going to be you know, a little more invasive, but he didn't try to talk me out of it. He didn't, that, you know, he, he was not the one that, that assumed that I was either ignorant. And, and since my cervix was not, um, part of the issue, um, it wasn't part of the medical issue. He, you know, he was comfortable with that. It was, uh, it was a female nurse that was the one who, um, sort of gave me the, you know, I, I, and I was just waiting for her to do the, you know, when a boy and a girl love each other very much kind of thing. Where I was like, no. And and I think some of the reason why I was so adamant was because of that kind of, you know, very patronizing attitude. When you go into a healthcare provider, do they turn the BDSM into the issue when that's not the issue? So you go in with uh, one problem and do they focus it and turn it around in the other? You mean the chiropractor never asked you if the reason your shoulder was sore was because you had whip arm or nope. tennis elbow? Nope. Okay. Or we call it mistress's elbow. What misconceptions do you think healthcare professionals have around BDSM? I think number one, I think number one is that they confuse it with domestic abuse. And uh, number two, they may confuse it with Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> which is literary abuse <laughs> yeah. oh god so bad yeah in terms of this confusion between domestic abuse or domestic violence and bdsm um, if you could educate healthcare professionals on understanding how to ascertain the difference um, or or how to understand the difference what would you tell them uh i'd say that the the primary difference is going to be in cons is um, consent and um, and I think that as a healthcare professional, being able to read someone's body language when they talk about consents is very important. Um, there, there are certainly times, you know, in my in my younger life when I was living in Seattle, where I had a doctor's appointment and I may have had, um, you know, fingertip bruises still apparent on my, you know, on my thighs, for example, and um, you know, and. And if they, if they were, um, you know, one of the, the areas that the doctor was looking at, I would say, you know, I, you know, I had a, um, I had a really good time last night <laughs> and, um, and was, you know, that, that being able to say that comfortably and not look, you know, like I was trying to hide them. Um, my, my body, my body language was fairly comfortable with it. I think that says a lot for, um, you know, for a healthcare provider um, who is looking for signs of abuse, and I think it's really important to uh, to know that and um, and to be able to, as my OBGYNs do, you know, sort of follow up a question of, you know, was that something you consented to? Because I think that that really leaves an opportunity for a person who is in a, you know, a patient in an office in a kind of a vulnerable situation 
even if they say, you know, well, I guess, you know, that's a great mm -hmm. response for healthcare providers to, to listen to. Um, and to follow up on. And to follow up with. Uh, and I, I think that's really important. I think that, you know, for me, uh, with mental health professionals, sometimes because they're sort of fascinated in sometimes with the, with SM and with, you know, it, there's, it, you know, it, it, re, it reminds me of, you know, any, like back in the, you know, when people were first really coming out, it's like, you know, I really don't want to be your, you know, queer 101 person right i'm i'm you know actually here for anxiety issues <laughs> you know not, not to um, teach you about sm and i've certainly um for me I've, I've certainly been very conscious of you know paying attention to that with with different people um i remember for example that um right after 9 11 basically the entire metropolitan area in new york had undergone you know uh, trauma and and depression and anxiety and they there should was... have just started pumping prozac <laughs> into the water supply yeah seriously um but the city the city here did a, a really tremendous outreach um of free mental health assistance um on the anniversary um i remember really distinctly that it was sort of you know over the last few weeks have you been feeling or you know over the last few months and um, and there was free, you know, intake and, and support help. And I, I found at that point, um, for me, um, Lori is a, you know, give me a pill and make me feel better person, but I'm a talk therapy person. Yeah. I'm all about better <laughs> living through chemistry. Yeah. Um, that, that at, at that point for me, one of the things that was important, um, cause usually when I look for healthcare professionals, I look for healthcare professionals who are either queer themselves or have a lot of experience working with LGBT patients. But because of this kind of trauma, what was more important to me was talking to somebody who was of my religion. And so when I, when I chose to look for therapy in that context, instead of going to um, our, our local gay community center, I went to our um, Jewish family services program and I was assigned to a, a therapist who had been working in Israel and had a specialty in working with trauma victims in Israel. And that was a much better time and moment. And, um, and the kind of therapy that I received was, was much more specific to that piece. And the fact that I was gay and that I was kinky was part of my background history, but was not what we worked on at all. Um, so I'd seen a therapist very, you know, very briefly first who, um, I'd gone to because she she had had been listed as somebody who dealt with with spiritual issues, but she was very um, Christian based, which is not a bad thing. But the relationship that Jews have to God is actually different. very different, and very so different. Um, you know it was not actually going to help me feel more relaxed to think of a um, you know a benevolent and caring God who loved. Um, I, I needed to talk to the God that King David you know, yelled at, you know, really angry Psalms with, mm -hmm. and to say, you know, this is, this is part this is of not acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so that was, you know, it was really kind of, for me, a teachable moment about like, you know, what's going to matter in, in each instance is going to be very different and where your priorities are. Yeah. Going back to your question about, uh, separating abuse though, I wanted to add that, um, it's not just the, uh, the question of did you consent to this because in a lot of ways people 
may feel like they are consenting to an abusive relationship because they're not ending it, right? Um, acceptance as a, as a passive um, uh, role is, is not, it's not uncommon. And so if I were talking to a health professional about it, I would not only make sure that they knew the language of the BDSM community, uh, terms like safe word, uh, how to negotiate things, uh, how uh, people differentiate different styles of relationships. Uh, do they just play together? Are they, do they consider themselves mistress and slave? You know, that, that sort of thing. So that they could do follow-up questions that are more specific and to listen for answers that take them outside that realm. Like, well, I provoked it. Well, it was my fault. Yeah, it, it, it's my fault is very different from it was what I wanted. You guys have been together a long, long time. <laughs> um, and times have changed, things have changed over time. Mm -hmm. What observations have you, could you make about how society's acceptance of BDSM or understanding of it has changed? Oh my goodness, it's a world of difference, isn't it? Oh, it's tremendously different. Yeah, there, um, there's it's much- 50 Shades of Grey. Yeah, there's, 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 you know, the, as, as uh, you know, as awful as, as the Fifty Shades of Grey book is, I would say that sort of the leap between um, watching, you know, Madonna videos to Fifty Shades of Grey ha is sort of the difference between sort of shifting into, I know, you know, one gay person to going to a parade, you know, I, I understand, I understand the, 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 the politics behind the importance of same sex marriage. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a big huge. leap and it's, and it's really about its infusion in popular culture. Right. That's it right there. I mean, 20 years ago, uh, absolute was daring, right. Right. For putting, for putting a dominatrix in one of their ads. Right. These days that's banal. Yeah, the imagery is everywhere. Come on, Target and Walmart carry toys, whips, blindfolds, that sort of thing. Um, in, in their in their like their personal hygiene aisle next right. to the lube, next to the lube and the condoms. And by the way, the ten different kinds of vibrators. So when you could go to Bed Bath and Beyond, yeah. and buy kinky toys, it's a huge yeah. shift. Yeah, I've been writing BDSM erotica since the early nineties, like nineteen ninety one. How's that change? Oh my God. Like I'm getting close to actually earning almost as much as someone on minimum wage. <laughs> it's yeah. very exciting. <laughs> has what you're writing in terms of scenes, has that changed? Well, not just my writing, but the whole field of erotic writing has changed in one really major aspect that not a lot of people talk about. Um, back when I was a kid, almost all of the kinky uh, porn um, would portray some percentage of non-consensual acts. So you would have the story of O, you know, your literary porn, and then you would, you know, go to 42nd Street and pick up gangbang tortured bride, <laughs> you know, trucker boys in bondage, whatever. These days, non-consensual acts in BDSM erotica are so taboo, they had to invent a new, uh, a new term for that kind of writing. <clears throat> Back in 1992, I published 
1991, really, mm -hmm. I published a gay male uh, kinky novel called Musclebound, packed full of non-consensual uh, acts going on, because that was what was in the gay men's magazines at the time. And so I was writing it in the style of the stories in their magazines, and it was wildly successful. It is the only one of my books, as far as I know, that was mentioned in an academic paper. The, yeah. the classic in right? innocence to experience hero's journey yeah. in this wonderful piece of erotic fiction. R written in with this voice of incredulity, like, <laughs> oh my goodness, I found a porn book that actually feels like it was written uh, in a style. And, and if only the author knew, I'm like, yes, the author knew. <laughs> the author definitely knew. The, the author had read Joseph Campbell, thank you. Right? You yeah. classist idiot. When I tried to have that book brought back into print in the early 2000s, yeah. no one would touch it. Oh, well, this book has rape in it. I was like, yeah, isn't it great? No. People find erotic is not always the thing that they want to have happen in real life. And so if you're writing erotica that involves lack of consent mm -hmm. um you know it's not it's not a natural extension that you're endorsing that people have non-consensual sex well i think nancy friday established that back right. in the 70s yeah yeah so you're just you're just trying to write things that people think are hot yes or that i think are hot so then with that taboo now on anything portraying <laughs> non-consensual sex how does this impact or has it impacted um play within the BDSM community mm. you know are you noticing fewer people playing and when I say playing at playing at non-consensual right. scenes but keeping in mind they're consenting right like if someone's playing right. yes. a non-consensual scene there is consent <laughs> right yeah, some people call that consensual non-consent which is a nonsense phrase until you kind of break it apart and parse it um I don't know that there are fewer percentage-wise but there are so many people playing now that I don't have my thumb on the various communities anymore. I mm -hmm. honestly don't know. It used to be 20, 30 years ago, you could keep track of what was happening in the trends. These days, well, it's more mainstream and it, there are more people doing it. So is any part of you sad to see it being more um, mainstream? Oh, like hell no. I'm as happy with that transition as I am that, that LGBT relationships have gained in respect and clout yeah. it is the same thing to me yeah i think i think that what what uh you know when i hear from you know friends or you know folks um in the in the community about you know oh you know these are all just you know weekend tourists that are coming to our our leather club kind of thing um you know it's it it, it is sort of the question uh about you know, for me, it's like so. So maybe the the thing that you're you're missing is the that your turn on your what what makes it erotic for you is the sense of risk of risk and danger secrecy and mm -hmm. yeah and and you know I think about that also when I when I've read like older um, you know gay men's um, erotica gay men's pornography and talk to some of the older gay male writers who, you know, also sort of lament the, you know, back when it was dangerous to, you had to know someone who knew someone to get into the club. And, you know, it's like, I understand, but that's actually the, maybe the erotic turn on. The fact that you can walk, you know, into any bar as an openly gay person is, is actually a really good thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so some of, you know, it may be that for some people that they're missing the eroticism of risk, but, that um, 
you know, that people, that people are more willing to explore their sexuality, that, you know, that Cosmo, I think, has made SM like their classic, you know, seven secrets to tell, you know, to learn about your lover kind of thing. And although, even although bad sexual advice from Cosmo, it's, it's about so fabulously SM bad. is hysterical. Yeah. I mean, one of their suggestions was to stab your lover in the, th in the thigh with a fork as they right. stepped out of the shower. And I'm like, no, that is bad. That's, <laughs> that's really, really bad. Don't do that. <laughs> You have to understand that that SM, BDSM, whatever you want to call it, it is both an identity and an activity. Mm -hmm. And one does not necessarily bear the other. Right. I would say that like for, for the two of us, one of the things that we've learned, I think, over time in, in terms of, of our lives is that um, I enjoy the activities of SM, but it is not as central to my identity as it is to Lori. Um, that, that you know, there was a, there's an old, um, I think we can name Pat Colifia. Yeah. Um, a thing where, where someone had once asked Pat, uh, Pat, if, um, when Pat was still identifying as, as lesbian, um, you know, who would you rather have on a, a desert island with you? Would it be a vanilla, a kinky man, a, a kinky man or a vanilla lesbian? And, and Pat the, was like kinky guy. Kinky guy, because there, because of the identity of kink was so much stronger and so much more important in, in terms of sexual identity. And I know that, you know, that would be the, the same for Lori would be, you know, there would be much more to do with someone who shares that, that kink identity. But then we would totally seduce the girl, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, sooner or later. <clears throat> oh, yes. Yeah. You've been listening to M-Dash, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. For a list of songs used in this episode, see our show notes at www.em-podcast.com.